Hello, and welcome back to our new podcast show, Breakfast with Minerals. In this series, we'll be sitting down with key influencers in the mineral collecting world to discuss different topics that affect us as a community, all while we're having breakfast. Hence the name of the show. Breakfast with Minerals is a three-way joint venture project that's brought to you courtesy of Blue Cat Productions, the Tucson and Denver Fine Mineral Show, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC. Our goal here is to bring these discussions to you, our listening audience, in the hopes that these episodes will spark continuing discussions online via our section on the Fabre Mineral Forum site, so we can all share our voices and thoughts. New episodes of Breakfast with Minerals will be recorded at the Tucson Fine Mineral Show, a.k.a. the Westward Look Show, and at the Denver Fine Mineral Show, and will be released shortly thereafter. If you have any thoughts or ideas on topics you'd like to hear us discuss, please drop us a line at topics at breakfastwithminerals.com. And with that, let's get started with Episode 2 of Breakfast with Minerals. In this episode, recorded at the 2018 Fine Mineral Show Tucson, show hosts Gail and Jim Spann sit down with Ian Bruce, Christoph Keilman, Alan Hart, Peter Lickberg, Joel Young-Ralph, and John Cornish to continue the discussion of the current state of the mineral world and how to prepare it for the next generation. This is the same topic as Episode 1, but this time we have a little more of a European perspective on the topic. If you haven't listened to Episode 1 yet, it's still online at breakfastwithminerals.com, and it makes an interesting contrast between the more American perspective represented in Episode 1 and this more European perspective of Episode 2. Now, before we get into the discussion, here's a little bit about each participant. Show hosts Gail and Jim Spann are a Dallas-based husband and wife collecting team who have only been collecting for 13 years, but have managed to build one of the top mineral collections in the United States. Their collection, consisting of over 12,000 mineral specimens, and their eagerness to share has earned them the respect of the mineral collecting community. Gail Spann also serves on the board for the Perot Museum in Dallas, Texas, the Northwest Rice Museum of Rocks and Minerals in Portland, Oregon, and chairs the board of the Mineralogical Record. Gail and Jim also serve on the Mineral Advisory Board of the Peabody Museum at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut, and the board of the Hudson Institute of Mineralogy, doing business as Mindat.org. Our first guest is Ian Bruce, who, along with his wife, Deanna, is the owner of Crystal Classics, based out of Somerset, England. Ian is one of the biggest and most successful mineral dealers in all of Europe. In addition to this, he's also one of the most prolific mineral specimen mining operators, with concurrent operations in progress in Ukraine, Australia, and Northern England. Also with us today is Christoph Keilman, show promoter for the biggest mineral show in Europe, The Munich Show, and second largest mineral show in the world. Christoph is constantly pushing the envelope in his efforts to continue the over 50-year tradition of creating museum-quality exhibitions at this incredibly popular and successful show. We're also quite fortunate to have with us today Mr. Alan Hart, former head of Earth Sciences Collections and principal curator of gems and minerals at the Natural History Museum of London, a.k.a. the British Museum. Alan is now the CEO of GMA in the U.K., as well as the host of What's Hot in Munich. 
Alan brings an incredible mix of mineralogical background, museum perspective, and gem world savvy to the table. And one of the best-known European collectors, Peter Lichtberg, is also joining us today. Peter is based out of Luxembourg and is an independent collector with over 50 years of mineral collecting field experience. Peter is also a much sought-after speaker on mineral topics, such as the minerals of Scandinavia, Russia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Brazil, Morocco, and Namibia. And where would our mineral collecting world be today without the efforts of Joel Yun Ralph, the creator of Mendat.org, and now Gemdat.org. Joel Yun's encyclopedic websites are the industry standard for in-depth information on mineral species, mineral localities, and mineral photographs for all minerals around the world. Our final guest for this episode is not actually a European guest at all, but he does have a European-sounding last name. Mr. John Cornish is a consummate field collector and miner. John's based out of the Pacific Northwest of America and is only truly happy when he's mining and digging specimens or when he's baking freshly picked wild berry pies. Mmm. <laughs> Sorry, must be hungry. John's enthusiasm for mineral collecting comes out most obviously when he's giving presentations to kids. And honestly, there is probably no one in the mineral world who has given more presentations to kids than John himself. So that's our lineup for today. Now let's join our guests as we discuss the current state of the mineral world and how to prepare it for the next generation. Gail, Jim, take it away. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks so much for being here. It's always exciting to eat and to talk with friends, which is a, a double delight. We're having breakfast with minerals with an international crowd of superstars in the room here today. So we're going to talk about uh, a variety of things, starting with the, the status of uh, uh, the mineral market uh, uh, globally and, and what's going on and what do we see happening and where do we see it going and things of that sort. Uh, Peter, do you have some, some thoughts on uh, what, what you see in the market these days? <clears throat> Absolutely. I was here in Tucson 30 years ago the first time, and what you see today is fantastic. It was very hard. My best piece I found in 89 was before Tucson, after Tucson. And if you go to any of the top dealers now, you see things that are just way beyond the best piece exhibited in Tucson 89. So this is really the golden ages. That's a great point. Alan, do you have any thoughts on what's happening from uh, your side of the um, world? Yeah, well, from my perspective, I mean, I've been coming to, to this show now for 15 years. Um, I think the sheer diversity of what is out there has expanded. When I first came 15 years ago, there's a few specimens out there that were new onto the market. You know, you, you knew what we had in the museums, and we sort of, were sort of relatively um, new. But nowadays I look around and there's so much stuff coming out of the ground that you, we always think, can it get any better? And it always seems to get better. And I do wonder today, like, will there come a day when <coughs> we'll go back and there won't be much, so much stuff coming out because it's just sustainability issues and things like that. But that's very interesting for me, that perspective. Ian, Ian, do you see a lot more dealers in the market these days, or is it more consolidating? What's happening on that end? I think there are a lot of dealers on the mineral market, but uh, I agree wholeheartedly with Peter's comments. When I first came to Tucson in 1993, the mineral market was a very different beast then. The sheer quality of the specimens that we see today, sometimes it's breathtaking. 
has changed. And I think, uh, I think just to add to what, again, what Peter was saying, I think the golden age of minerals is just beginning. And it's, uh, it's a maturing market. Uh, we're seeing fabulous things coming out of the ground. There are mineral <coughs> specimen mines now. And uh, we had the perfect example the other night when uh, we saw the award ceremony with, with uh, an award going to, uh, to Rod Tyson for all the collecting he'd done in his life. And one of the images that Gene had put up were some of the absolute treasures that have come out of the, some of the mining operations in the last years, some of the best mineral specimens that are known to exist on Earth up to this point. It really has been extraordinary. One of the things, too, uh, John, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Uh, as, as you go, as diggers and miners go looking for that great, fabulous uh, specimen along the way, you find, what, thousands of other pieces that end up populating the, uh, the lower end of the market? So there's still a lot of uh, inexpensive, beautiful pieces. Is that, uh, is that getting better? You know, better that is an absolute truism. You know, I love the idea of the full enchilada, if you will, of lower end up to ultimate high end specimens being available because it's so important to have the introductory specimens be available for people who are just coming onto the hobby to learn by. So while we can have these ultimate icon specimens that we see in publications, that we see in dealer shelves, it's so nice to know that we can go back to our roots, we can go to these beautiful little primary specimens and use them as the sharing stepping stones that we begin the educational process with people. It's a good time, it's the best of times. That's great. Chris, as a, as a show promoter, are you finding that uh, the shows are, are getting larger by way of uh, number of dealers or well, participants coming to the events? I, I would say as when I took over the Munich show around 15 years ago from my dad, I saw this mineral market from a step outside. So I'm not dealing with these minerals, of course, obviously. And so what I see is that the economical situation behind our hobby, as you said, John, uh, it's coming more and more to an industry. So it means the development of economically wise our hobby to the industry comes to till today and it starts from today. So a lot of more money is involved into this market now. So this can develop better specimens, can uh, produce much more minerals out of the, the mines because this costs a lot of money, as Ian obviously know how much money has to be invested. Julian, as somebody who deals with Mindat every single hour of every single day, have you seen that there's more um, participation from a diverse crowd as far as adding photos and being more involved than, than in the past? Certainly. I mean, obviously, when, when Mindat started, it was very much a, a niche site for a small number of mineral collectors, primarily field collectors who wanted to share their information. Um, but the, uh, the, the spread and the, uh, the, the breadth of people who are now using the site is, is quite astonishing uh, at every level. And I'm, I'm always, uh, always delighted when I see a discussion where um, someone who is a kid who's just found a stone on the beach uh, is posting a message asking what it is and one of the people who responds might be the chairman of the International Mineralogical Association. Uh, so, so these sort of things are good. Um, I'd like to go quickly back to the, 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 the discussion that was previously about the, the change in the whole mineral market and this has been reflected as well within MINDAT and 
Um, I mean, un the unfortunate side effect of the fact that we have now got such great minerals coming to the market is that there is a small but vocal part of the community who are complaining that the, mark the prices are going up too high, um, that everything is too expensive, and that new collectors are being priced out of the market. And one thing that I'm very clear about is this is absolutely not the case. Um, and I'm trying to show um, through the reporting that I do on, on Mindat that, hey, not, I'm not just reporting on the, the $20,000 rocks, I'm reporting on the $20 rocks. A few years ago at Tucson, I put in a showcase here of rocks purchased at the show within the last week that were $10 or less. And some of those pieces are still in my collection. Um, there is plenty of material at every level. And what I think the collectors don't understand is that it is the, the mines that operate to get these high-level pieces out, the half-a-million-dollar piece, that pays for the operation that allows the flats and flats and flats of $5 rocks and $10 rocks to come out for the beginners. So this is a critical and essential part of the market. Very true. Well... Based on that, how do we make it inviting for new people and for young people to come into this this hobby, Ian? I, I think I, I like I like John Cornish's approach. You know, I think it's uh, it's a responsibility we all have, the dealers, the curators, the show promoters. You know, for us all and the collectors to 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 make it attractive for these kids to come. They must be able to spend their pocket money. I spent my pocket money when I was five years old on minerals. What else was there? You know, and we always have to be able to say, right, there's a fluorite that you can afford, young man. Give me, give me 50 cents. You know, we always have to, we all have that responsibility, every one of us. Well, beyond pricing of minerals, which is important for young people to, who are financially strapped, what else can we do to get young people in? I mean, there's other venues, there's other mindsets about this. Peter, do you have any ideas? Uh, yeah, I think it's very important. The number one is that uh, kids are exposed at all to minerals. So Natural History Museum, some of them don't have mineral exhibits at all. And yesterday I was uh, guiding uh, together with a PhD student of mineralogy. And she visited a museum age of seven. And the curator saw she paid interest and gave her a quartz crystal. So now in a year she would be a PhD in mineralogy, which is excellent. So I think it's very important to try to get via all kinds of media, whether museums or shows, but I think it, it needs to reach out in all kinds of media and maybe even games for kids. And, but, of course, they need to see the real material somewhere. There's, well, yeah. there's so much available online, which is a help. It certainly is, and also at museums that, uh, that, that have had mineral collections for a long time. I'm going to point to uh, Alan, and, and his, much as, if not most of your career, was involved with museums and displays, and, and, and I'm curious as to how you brought in uh, educational uh, venues or opportunities for, in particular, the kids, but for young adults as well. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting point. I think, you know, to be, let's be brutally honest about this, is that I think some museums have been not very agile in, in their education um, outreach. You know, when, when I look at the past of uh, the Natural History Museum in London, uh, you look back at the archive and it said they're going to build collections for science <coughs> and the collections for the masses. You know, the education part was separated from the scientific research, yeah. and that's the mission of the museum was those two very separate things. I think bringing them together has been difficult. 
Um, I know many great collectors who were inspired by single specimens in museums. They saw a specimen, it inspired them, they went on to great things. And so you're right, we have to have the visual aspect, but then there's the information aspect, and you can get so much information online, maybe not too much facts, a lot of misinformation out there. But I think also the museum has to give back somewhat in, in, in the releasing funds to educate as well, like Peter says. You know, you give specimens to kids, they go away with a feeling. And it's usually the individual curator who does that, but not the museum. And inside museums, there's lots of... People don't really realise this. There's lots of competing activities inside the museum. So one department says, well, I'm an education department. That's my job to do that, not the curator's job. And so it does need a... You know, I've had many frank conversations internally about how can we bridge the gap inside to make the gap better outside. Mm. Um, and uh, as you know, we have the Society of Mineral Museum Professionals, where now museums are coming together to talk about it, because many museums need ammunition to their powers that be to make their offer better. And when you've got museums as a voice and collaborations, that's much more powerful than standing alone. And just following on from that, I think when, if you look around now, um, you see a younger generation of curators that are coming up through the ranks, and they're the people you have to support mm-hmm. at grassroots levels, and they're the people that will support the modern things like social media, Instagram, Twitter. All of that plays a part. And those curators will be the inspiration for the younger kids. But I, I still think there's a way to go, but I'm, I'm quite positive about the future. John, I, uh, you had something you wanted to add to the conversation. Well, I really appreciate the perspectives that we're sharing here. We're a group of incredibly passionate people, and I think that's one of the ultimate things that we get to share, is bringing this passion on out and expressing it to the young as well as to the novices that are among us. Uh, exposure, the word that Peter used, is key. We have to expose the people to this wonderful world that we have. And whether it's entertaining and enthusing children bringing them on up, or it's sharing with our neighbors, our friends, our peers. This is a wonderful world, and it's the world that we are walking on, that we are surrounded by. And I love it that anywhere we can go, there's a rock. The rock is willing to tell its story if we're willing to take the time to listen. And it's a fascinating story that we can share. And I just love the opportunities with technologies that we have, uh, the shows that we have, the abilities that we have to really just crack open this egg and see all the potentials that are there. Passion is what really is such a thriving happiness within our group. If we can expose the kids to that passion, the adults to that passion, everybody will be energized. That's perfect. And Jim and I have done something new this year. We're actually sponsoring um, a few young people in their 20s to come out to the show. So we've flown out today a young fellow named Duncan Keller from Yale and uh, who helps at the Peabody Museum who could not afford to come here but we've uh, got him coming in and he'll be at the main show and helping to put our cases in with us and really sort of becoming involved so the idea of sponsoring um, somebody who's really got that passion but doesn't have the money and mentoring and mentoring them. Mentoring. And uh, we also have Kevin Bet- Betancourt coming from the Perot Museum, a newly hired uh, registrar strictly for the Gem and Mineral Hall. And he <coughs> is flying in today also. And, um, and then we assistant. have our own assistant, Courtney Lara, who is um, some of you met in Denver. But anyway, it's about getting some young people out here too and mentoring them and showing them 
the roll up your sleeves and let's get dirty at Tucson that make these incredible things happen. Do you have any programs, Chris, at, in Munich for young people? Of course. I mean, you, you are the collectors who gave us all their treasures for our special exhibits. Thank you very much, of course. Not only you, but also the dealers and all the passionate people who wants to educate the young generations. And this is what we do in Munich. We do our very special exhibits and try to educate the people, but not only educating, also showing the, the fascinating uh, surrounding of these minerals and this atmosphere which minerals can give you. Um, on the other hand, we do a lot of activities during the Munich show to, you know, to help the, the young people to get into the scenery, like gold panning or even with fossils, you know, these uh, dividing stones and, and finding these fish, fish fossils in there. How from, fun. from Yes, very funny. Um, but also some curious things like um, touching minerals for blind people to uh, understand what nature is, because it's not only of what you see, it's also what you can feel. And this is, this is a pretty interesting activity in the Munich show. That's, That's fabulous. Point. One of the things that we're, we're, we're observing, at least, is we're talking about the, the millennials and the 20-somethings and the next generation after that. <coughs> Social media is such a major source of information and communication, and, and, and we don't get the sense that the, the museums, and, as, never mind the industry, is really using that to full advantage. Uh, Joanne, are you seeing new products or new apps developing to try and educate and bring people together talking about minerals? Well, actually, I think the, from what I've seen, the majority of museums are pretty well tied into social media now, and a lot of them will have full-time social media uh, staff now. Uh, generally, what tends to happen is that they will have a social media person or for the large museums, a social media team um, that are to cover the whole of the museum rather than in any specific discipline. Um, so then it's up to individual departments to actually push through information that they want to share on social media. And so they only get a share of the, a percentage of the time of the, of the social media. But I think museums have woken up to it. I mean, one of the things that used to be the, the norm in all museums was great big signs saying photography not allowed. And nowadays, I think most museums are realizing that that's extraordinarily counterproductive when it comes to social media. And most are now embracing people sharing things on their phones, and it's, it's the best form of publicity for, for museums. Um, but um, I think we are in a golden age. I mean, I remember back to when I was, uh, when I was a child, um, and I started collecting minerals. Um, I was convinced I was the only person in the UK with this crazy hobby. I did not have any other way of finding other people with shared interests, of finding organizations or events. I stumbled across one or two mineral shows purely by accident. Um, of course, I would go up to the uh, Natural History Museum and, and what was then the Geological Museum in London and, and spend my time and my money there. Um, one of the things that I think has gone backwards a little bit is that the, uh, at that time, the, the gift shops in the museums were were very good places to go for a child to buy minerals. Nowadays, it's all been commercialized and they're all selling the same little tumbled bits of 
of, of Didagate and everything else. And I think it's the, the museums have lost control of the shops through commercial mm-hmm. uh, reasons. And that's it's um, there's just unfortunate that that's what's happened. So, but I mean that at the time that was my only way of getting minerals really now everybody has many 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 other choices so it's not such a big deal but we did notice that yesterday people talked about the rock shops that they used to go to and that those have mostly gone away a lot of those little shops that you stop in a town and you would pick up some rocks peter do you have any thoughts i do i think it's particularly interesting and important to try to attract the very young people because when you get people in who are three, four, five, six, seven years old, I, I really, I don't know how to best, uh, you know, expose this to them because some of them are not old enough to go on the internet. But myself, I, I was two, three years old. I had collected already minerals, but when I saw the Museum of Natural History, so we went there a few times per year and the times when we'd seen all the animals and my mother and my sister skipped the crystals, I was pretty upset. I was two, three years old. <laughs> but I told them I was going to be an explorer, upptäcksresan in Swedish, when I was growing up. And I had the same problem as Jolien. I did not know anyone else who was interested in minerals. Mm. Yeah. I was surprised that no adults knew more than 10 different mineral species. And we had, I and a few friends, we had like a mineral club. It was just the closest friends. And we even made a mineral journal where we had the meteorite from outer space. I, I drew on the cover of yeah. this. We made our own one issue, mineral magazine. Well, and we, <laughs> we also, you know, we know that all of us have other collections because we're collectors. So, you know, when you're with the minerals, suddenly you find yourself with some petrified wood and some fossils and, you know, you, and jewelry and, and things that are, are connected to it. So it's really a, a huge expanse, John. You know, I, I, I love this whole talk about children. Children is a, a main focus of where I like to put my energy. I like to energize the new people coming in. But, you know, one of the things is that kids, they're, they're automatically, they're little magnets that we're going to attract every time. Where the difficulty arises is when the kids go home and they approach their parents with this fascinating new things that they've learned and they hit that deadbeat where they don't know how to pursue. The parents aren't understanding of the new fascination that the children have. So I think that it's very important not just to energize the kids, but to give the kids the potential to energize their parents also. One of the nice ways that I like to do this is sending the kids home with the idea of collecting micrometeorites from their gutters. They can go on up under the roofs with their parents. They can learn this fascinating side of science. And it becomes a very neat subject that can be taken into the classroom, that can enthuse the parents. I mean, geez, you get free help to clean the gutters, right? So <laughs> the parents are going to love it. But, uh, and incidentally, kids, not giving anybody out there permission to go up on your roofs alone. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of the great ways that we can send science home. And if we can enthuse the parents, then we truly get to go to that next level with the new generation that's coming up. Well, and something else that we haven't really touched on is how do we get diversity how do we approach communities that aren't normally going to the museums and and you know exposure 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 exposure. we have discovered that a lot of rock clubs although some can be very stodgy there are some rock clubs and uh, gem and mineral clubs that are coming out and doing digs every month and having exciting programs for children so if we can focus on those and at the Perot Museum when I'm a docent I send people right away 
to various other um, rock clubs where uh, they will take children five and up and the parents have to go with them to go digging. But let's face it, pulling your first rock out of the ground gives you the bug for the rest of your life. So, Peter. I think one good thing would be if Natural History Museum or whatever the venue would have a mine dump outside where the people could go and dig crystals. We organized a mountain bike in Northern Sweden in the year 2000, and I said to the mining company, I encouraged, I was there during a couple of years, and we took out uh, over a dozen truckloads of calcite crystals and Hindenburgites. And that dump opened when the show opened, and it was for free, and the dump was gone. Can you imagine, 12 truckloads, it was gone wow. at the end of the show. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How fun is that? Um, Jim? Well, Ian, as, as a, both a dealer and a, and a digger now with a number of, of active mines, uh, is, is there a, an avenue for, for children or young adults to be involved in some of that? There is, and I think it's, uh, you know, we, uh, we, we encourage children to come on to the, uh, up, up to the mine site. Um, we have to be very careful, but one of the biggest pleasures last year was when Alan uh, Hart just to my right here, brought his daughter <laughs> Briley up, and uh, I think she had one. Of, I'd be fair to say she had one of the best days of her she life. Did. And how old was she? Uh, ten. Ten. Well, I was going to say last time I knew her, she was crawling on the floor. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 she still does. That's yeah, perfect. The, the look in these kids' eyes when they actually pull out a crystal, and it wasn't just the look; it was the noise and the excitement. <laughs> and the, she, she just, she was elated. Yeah. Well, you know, if I step in there, we had a long conversation driving back. And uh, I think she was a bit shocked because she couldn't realize she didn't realize that these things she'd seen at shows with these, with these big price tags were coming out of a really muddy hole in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, and so these, a lot of work and he's, she asks a lot of questions. He's come out, and then Ian puts that on the stand, and he sells it, and he's, there's loads here, and he's like, yeah, and we've been having a conversation. And that exposure is really important, but I'm, let's be honest, I'm, we're really privileged where we are at to be able to say to you, hey, I'm coming to the mine, I'm going to look after her. And uh, she loved it. She absolutely adored it. That's and, great. And, and going back again on that also is, the, that is, is exposure. Um, but also there's a lot of competition, you know, I must say, like a few hours later, she was on her iPad playing, doing other things. And I was hoping, I hope you don't forget your experience. So I made sure I got loads of pictures. I put them on my Instagram. And uh, she was so proud that she was on my Instagram. And she went to school and she showed everyone that. And then the kids have started asking the questions. But once again, uh, where is the shop I can go to buy them? And did she go home with a fluorite or something? She did, yeah. Ian was kind enough to and... say, like, you know, obviously when I saw the, 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 the multi-billion dollar piece, I pulled out the ground and went, oh, I think I'll be better clean that properly. And I took it away. <laughs> um, but well, she got some really nice pieces. And we spent a yeah. few times sorting out the crystals into colours and shapes. Aww. Um, and things like this. And that, it was great. Well, as a docent on the floor uh, of a museum, I often um, have found that when the children walk in, they take their phone and they take a picture, but they don't actually look. I watch them. They don't look with their eyes. They take pictures from case to case, and I say to them, what are you going to do with that picture? Well, I'm going to show my mom. And I'm like, and then what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. So... I like, you know, how do we encourage children to to actually look at the pieces and and enjoy them? Because it's almost exclusively 
seen through the camera lens and not, not through the eye. I think I'll just step in there and say that also with that, there is a big children, there's a very, they're a very competitive element as well. Um, we did an initiative in the museum about uh, using the mineral gallery as a treasure hunt. And it got kids in there, you know, they say, listen, not, don't look at the minerals, but you now have to find a red crystal. It comes from Colorado. And they That's searched great. and searched and searched. They looked in every case and said that they found it. First one there, great. I think that's and the same with social media. Who can take the best picture, submit it somewhere, and let's have a competition. If you win that competition, you might get a specimen. That's a that great idea. That competitive element is really important for children because they love that. Ian. But I, I can tell you the sheer horror from, uh, <laughs> from my <Whoa>. parents <laughs> when... Uh, I was, I was about seven years old, and I'd always wanted to own a Laroconite, and it's still my favourite uh, mineral species to this day. And uh, at that time, Sam Weller, who was an English uh, Cornish mineral dealer, had a, a shop in the centre of Penzance, and, uh, and there it was. During the family holiday, I found what was to become my first Laroconite, and it was for £7, which uh, was a lot of money, a lot of money. all those years ago. Um, and... Uh, Anyway, this, uh, this young child, myself, only had five pounds, and that was the whole week's month's pocket money. And uh, I'd been talking to Sam, and he was very, a very kind man, and he said, OK, young man, you can take this, uh, you can have this for, for five pounds. And there it was, my first Laroconite, and this was the best thing that had ever happened to me. I now owned a Laroconite, and I had a prearranged time to, uh, to meet my parents who'd gone next door and... Uh, they were, they were doing whatever they were doing. And uh, we got back to the car and my mum said, did you have a nice time in the, in the rock shop? And I said, yeah, yeah, look what I got. And I said it was only five pounds. And she looked at me in horror <laughs> and grabbed this thing out of my hand, oh. looking at it and saying, but you've just been ripped off. You've got a piece of green mildew on rock and you paid five pounds <laughs> for that. And she marched me back oh. to this shop. Oh. to Sam Weller and she said uh, what are you doing you've just ripped my son off you've just sold him this green mildew on rock and you took all his pocket money aren't you ashamed of yourself so he spent this poor guy spent the next hour explaining to my mum that this was actually a rare mineral and what a mineral really was so hmm. John, the rest, the rest is history to speak. Oh, well I, I just I love the magic of this because so often we think that you know it's the ultimate, the iconic rock that is really the most important. When it's really, it's that first rock. It's mm -hmm. the one that's covered in dirt that the child picks on up. That gets to be a touchstone that doesn't just enthuse them for the moment, but mm -hmm. has the potential to enthuse them for the rest of their lives. And I think this is so important for us as adults to make sure not to put our value system onto children so that the children can express that pure innocence and that pure fascination. It doesn't have to be the million-dollar rock that inspires a person for a lifetime. I have noticed a great deal of young ladies coming into the hobby, a lot of 10- and 12-year-old girls who come up to me and spout all sorts of scientific data. So I, I've really enjoyed the, the trend of of the young girls coming in and women coming into the hobby. Does anybody have any thoughts on this? Or well, I'd concept? like to share a thought about uh, taking youngsters out into the field. Our, our youngest son, who's now 37, when he was nine years old, we went, uh, we went off for a hike, and I had, I had seen skiing in, in the previous winter 
this big boulder full of uh, almondine garnets. And we were going to climb that mountain and go harvest some of these uh, crystals. And we did. And we're chasing wild turkeys away through the woods. And uh, just it was a gorgeous trip uh, all by itself. But, but getting up there and, and, uh, and, and having this nine-year-old uh, literally with a hammer in hand and, uh, and pulling garnets out of this, uh, this big boulder was, was quite a treat. And he still has every one of those crystals. And as uh, many of you know, he's, he's very much in the hobby as a mineral photographer and gemologist to this day. So. And, and the corollary to that, too, was what, what, when I realized he had this interest, uh, at that age you're just starting to really learn how to read and, and uh, uh, read more than just picture books. Uh, that summer he had read 38 books on crystallography and, uh, and mineralogy, and, and uh, uh, it wasn't more because the library didn't have any more. So, wow, this is a passion. If you can encourage him to read like that, let's focus on, on that passion. And, uh, and that has stayed with him for both in terms of being a, an excellent reader, but now also an a enthusiast for the hobby as well. John? This is silly. I'm sitting here and I got the biggest grin on my face as I'm watching Jim's eyes light up as he tells the story of his young son and the dad that's going out in the wilderness. And I got to tell you, you know, I don't know who's more enthused here, Jim telling the story of his son or his son out there collecting his first rocks for the first time. And I think this is the important thing about adults is that we need to step away from our own agendas sometimes to understand that with just a little tiny sharing of our passion, we can enthuse an entire generation. Mm. Ian, you look anxious to speak. Yeah, John, I think it's the size of the breakfast in front of you that's causing the grin. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> Anybody? Peter, yes. I and my brother, we used to do, uh, for many, many years, we, had, we were trimming specimens on his balcony. And it was right next to kindergarten. And we used to throw all the crystals and all the bits of amethyst over the fence into the kindergarten. And it didn't, when we started doing that, it didn't take many weeks before during the weekend, kids came with their parents digging. It was a slope where they would go, <laughs> go sliding in the wintertime. But it was really good. So we did that for 15, 20 years. And my brother, he's taken care of 52 kindergartens and a few schools in Sweden. And he used to have uh, crystal hunting. So he arranged at each one. He goes out and places. Usually the kindergarten in Sweden have some terrain with some hills. And he would go out and place some crystals in crevices and cracks and you know, a few hundred bits and pieces. Mm. And then the kids are let out. And the joy to see them hunt for crystals, it's amazing. The problem is <clears throat> there are two. One, sometimes somebody working at the kindergarten will harvest from the kids. I've seen that. Oh, horrible. <laughs> you got such adults. Or the parents, when they come home, they will throw them out. So my sister is a medical nurse. She flew to Luxembourg to visit with another friend who's a medical nurse, who said she knew I was into minerals before she saw my collection. And my son is always bringing those rocks home and with boxes and boxes. And I have to throw them out. I said, why are you throwing them out? Then I was showing my collection. I also started with small bits and pieces, so don't throw them out. So it ended up, of course, I sent a flat with nice different specimens and some mineralogical journals to her you know, young son home. So that's what needed. So you have parents who are really discouraged. My mother also told me to throw out the rocks. I was hiding them under the bed when, when the, you know, with the 
the piles and boxes can reach the, the clothes in the cupboard. So. I often find the beautiful garden rocks that somebody <laughs> spent some time digging out of the ground at some point. Um, and sadly, many collections end up on the, uh, you know, going out into the trash, which is very sad because people don't understand them. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts? Well, I think um, there's a big change, actually, in our generations because the technique is so fast. And when I remember back to my youth, um, I was always, when I was in school, my friends told me, okay, what is your dad doing? And I said, well, he's doing a mineral show and he's promoter of a mineral show. And they, they told me, okay, you're uh, related with stones and rocks. Okay, that's, that's funny, something like that. So, but um, after my youth, those people come to me now because they are also parents and they are very, very happy to, to come to our show with their kids to show this, but they didn't understand before when they were young. Right. And, um, but now something comes together with this along. This is our fast uh, world we are living in and the technology. We didn't have these iPhones and, and, and uh, telephones uh, years before. So we have to create a technique or something, a tool which we can give the young people to add to the idea of collecting minerals. Mm. Exactly. I think that's important, it to is. go with the future. One of the things we learned fairly early on in our collecting, and really our displaying of our collection, we would often have uh, couples come to our home, and it was, invariably it was the husband who was interested in minerals, and the wife was dragged along and not really interested at all in being there and looking at her watch, but when are we going to leave until... They, they saw uh, gemstones and cut crystals on the shelf and started asking about, well, what's this beautiful red thing? Oh, that's rubellite, tourmaline. And it comes from a crystal right behind it there that uh, this is the natural crystal that it's cut from. So you have a cut and rough display. And we realized that that got them enthused and they started looking around very much like that, uh, uh, looking for the, the treasure in the museum. It's, uh, where's that other treasure in this collection? And as we uh, realized that that got more and more of the adults involved, uh, we started talking about being collectors, went from just minerals to minerals and gemstones and the combination of the two. And, and, and Alan, I'm, I'm curious to hear if, uh, if you're seeing a trend, from whether it be from museums or collections otherwise, that uh, are combining the two. May I quickly interject that nobody wants to drag away from our house because I like to cook for them and make them at home. So this is true. <laughs> Alan, I, I think if you if you look around, the the rise in gemology is been big the last few years, especially museums, because that is the way to attract the audience into the museum. You know, um, I, I hate to say it, but we used to talk about our gallery sometimes as rows of dreary Victoriana. You know, the, you know the, the old curiosity shop. Mm -hmm. And so we had to reinvent ourselves in the museum by doing a big diamond exhibition. And that brought in a whole new audience. It stole a lot of people from the V&A, which we were really happy about because they were going to spend money in the shop on things. But then we opened the vault exhibition. And we used, <coughs> we used the collections at the museum in a different way that was ever used in the past, solely to get people in to look at stuff that they would never even think about looking at. So gemstones are really the purest minerals, and the great thing about gems is they have a huge billion-dollar industry behind them, 
of wealthy individuals um, who may give back. So, for an example, I had a meeting the other day with a lot of art dealers out of New York. We're just having a, a coffee and, and, a, and a few beers. And, and uh, they said, oh, can we walk around and show with you? Because I've become, um, believe, these geometrical forms. You see the gems, but these other things. And so I'm going to do that, and I'll let's see what happens. But going back to the point, I think, yeah, museums have reinvented themselves. Um, the science of gemology is growing. But also I notice here there's still that big divide between the gem show and the mineral show. So it's almost, you know, here at Tucson, the, the mineral show is at the end of it. That's the main focus. And you have this massive gem show at the beginning. And a lot of those people, they tend to stay on as part of their holiday and look at the minerals because they, they're infused by them. The so, Hope Diamond. You yeah. Know, let's face it, people, when you say, oh, the gem and the, and the minerals, and they're like, oh, the Hope Diamond. So somebody marketed that extremely well over the many years. And we yeah. used to say that, you know, if, if you, to kids, you know, look around your house, you will find a mineral in your house. Yeah. You know, where you've got a ring, or you've got some jewelry, or you've got, you know, it's the, and that's an interesting thing. Or what's program. in this, in your cell phone. Yeah, because right. that's an education that we tend to be lacking in. Mm. It's the way that we use minerals in our home and everyday life. Mm. Peter. But I was thinking, <clears throat> when it comes to media, there was this uh, prospectors program, which of course attracted, in my point of view, it was way too much focused on the value of things. It, you know, that's not the importance to get kids attracted. But it could be taken to a level where you, in fact, would show kids, like you did years ago, Brian. You would show kids can go in principle anywhere in the world from different places. You can find small, simple crystals in the crevice if you would... If such kind of film would be on YouTube or wherever, so people would understand that I could find something maybe in my neighborhood. And <clears throat> to combine that with some sort of geology of regional parts of the world so people could understand in what environment they possibly could find wherever their home is. Right, that's true. Julian? Well, I mean, I think I've been in given uh, sort of talks and uh, sort of hands-on uh, sessions with minerals to the uh, nursery where, where Roman goes to, for example. So it's like three, four, five-year-olds. Um, and, and what I've generally found is that you don't need to worry too much about trying to get children enthused about minerals. You will have a group, and out of that group you'll see that there's maybe a third of them who have no interest at all. They're just bored. You have another third who are oh, kind of interested, but you, then you've got, uh, and maybe another third, who are fascinated. Um, so the key thing is not trying to worry about how to get children enthused about minerals, because they will, or at least those who have any sort of, it has a connection with, they will have that. The key thing, as we said before, is, is how to nurture that. And so... Um, our responsibility as a community is to, to notice when, when someone, a younger person, a child or however, whatever age, has got the bug and be able to support that. Um, because, I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about in terms of, you know, changes in society. I mean, if we look now at younger people like the, the, the so-called millennials, um, there is a drift away from owning physical objects. They are not interested in having a collection as such. And the, the whole concept of going around with the, with the cell phone, snapping things and, on Instagram, that is their collection. Their collection is a collection of memories rather than a collection of physical objects. Now, from, from, from us as the older, old-style collectors, we find that very strange and, and kind of uncomfortable. 
but this is a whole generation who are growing up. They'd have, they're looking at a future where they have to live in apartments with very little space. Um, they have um, very little um, spending money, potentially. Um, so what they are doing instead of going out to buy minerals is, would be to go off travelling around the world um, and, and taking the photos, taking the memories. Um, but, of course, there will still be a good percentage of those who, who find something. And when you've found something, you'll want to keep it. And then when you've started collecting it, you know, the bug grows and, and things start building up. We have seen a, you know, that many sites that people used to go and dig uh, are private property. And those, those um, available sites are, are becoming fewer and farther, farther in between. So... Um, Insurance has had a big part of that, concerns about um, people becoming hurt. So, you know, it's tough. I'm, I'm interested in, in uh, the, the, your one-third, one-third, one-third concept. One of the things that comes to mind is there's a third, as you say, that has no interest at all. They're, they'll be taking the photos and, or viewing somebody else's photos. That Another third that are interested, <clears throat> they're the one actually taking the photos. That last third, are those going to be... Uh, we're collectors. We have the collector gene, as you put it. Uh, and and uh, will you have some of those folks who will still want to physically collect things? Uh, and maybe out of that group, uh, um, uh, desire to, to get more involved with the science, uh, whether it be the chemistry or the mineralogy and, and the research. Uh, as, as Alan was talking earlier about uh, the museum having that research component versus, the, if you will, the collection component. Uh, how, do you, how do you cross that divide? How do you encourage more folks to go down the scientific end of things as well? Alan? Alan? That's a really, really good point. I think for, for the museums, the, you, you have to be simple. I'll tell you what, most people who come into the museum do not know what they're looking at. Mm. And in the past, you put far too much information and people just walk away. So when we open our vault exhibition, it would show a beautiful specimen to make people go, wow, what's that? And then have one simple thing like where it was mined even go down the route how much it's worth, what this has done for science. You know, this, this is a new element to science or you know, a new mineral to science. Um, but it's that exposure again, bringing people in and showing them something that is spectacular. And I think this is this tipping points also with the art and why do people collect? You know, our museum, we collect for research and to educate. You know, some people collect because they like to showcase things in their front room in a cabinet because it's an art piece of artwork. Yeah. And I think once the art community, I think we're not there yet, but once the art, we are getting there, once the art community, which is huge, starts saying, wow, I want to start collecting minerals because they're beautiful, they're natural objects, and people will enjoy them, and I'm going to give them experience, that is when I think we see a big sea change. We left one thing out, and that um, when I'm on the floor and people turn to me and actually ask a question, it's usually, what's the story on this? They want a story because... All cultures tell stories. And so when they listen to me talking about a rock and who took, dug it out of the ground, how long ago, how dirty it was, what it looked like, um, so on and so forth, they, I love when I walk away, they'll go, hey, Bob, come over here. Let me tell you about this rock. And it's the stories that are also important. That's why the Hope Diamond, I think, was marketed so well. The curse of the Hope Diamond. Oh, you know, people love that. John? You know, I agree with everything that's being said here. So much of this is about exposure, just being able to have that opportunity to share this wonderful world with others. 
And at that point, you know, uh, even the third that may go away that's maybe not interested, I, I want to have them have the opportunity to know that this world is out there, to know how it approaches the technologies that they're using every day. I want them to see us as adults be passionate individuals who are willing to share this wonderful thing that we enjoy. Whether they connect with it or not is really not the point. At least from my perspective, I just want them to have that opportunity to know that this is a world out there that exists around them and that, you know, because time changes. Your, your perspectives when you're 10 are not the perspectives when you're 20 versus when you're 40. So by having that exposure, even if it's not something that we're willing to play with in the moment, we can keep it as a memory, as something that is within us, and we can journey back to it through exposures of museums, the shows, the education that we have in articles and TV shows. We can reignite that flame. Well, John, I think one of the most important things I want to know from you is your pie recipes. So. <laughs> <laughs> Julian? I mean, this is very interesting. I mean, I, I spent a bit of time out in China uh, a few years ago uh, for the uh, Changsha Mineral Show. where They were starting to launch a brand new mineral show in China. Uh, and they, they visited the Munich show, they visited Tucson, and they thought, hey, this is great. We can replicate everything that they've done in China, and it'll be huge, and it'll be a success. And of course, it wasn't. And I was having a lot of conversations with the organisers, with other people involved in there, with dealers, uh, and and with some of the Chinese collectors, trying to understand really what was happening. And we saw something very interesting, and I think this sort of mirrors uh, the whole conversation we're having. And that was, we would see uh, someone, a, a Chinese. Uh, businessman, for example, walk up to one of the high-value cabinets there from one of the mineral dealers, start looking at things, and you could see he was really excited, really interested, and almost about to buy something, and then his face would drop, and he would immediately sort of lose interest and walk away. So I saw this more than once, and I asked, what's going on? And I put this down to what I call the dinner party effect, and that is they think about what they have in their house, and they think, I've, this is a fantastic mineral, and then they suddenly get cold feet because they think, I won't know how to tell people what it is if they ask me, what is this that I have bought? So it is their fear of their lack of knowledge of the subject that is putting them off building a collection. And so this is why I said, you, this is why education is so important at every level. Uh, Go ahead, and, you know, if, if you want a, a buyer to buy something expensive, you've got to not just, you've got to explain it to them in a way that they will be able to learn and be able to tell to everybody who comes to their house, this is, this is a, um, a, a finest cuprite crystal in the world or, or whatever it is. So they have that little bit of information and then they are reassured. And that's what they need. When I owned an art gallery... I had to tell the, the whole story on the painting when somebody would buy it because they didn't want to look foolish to have it hanging and then somebody say, oh, I love that painting. They love to be able to turn and go, well, let me tell you about this. That's, that's important. That's a, it's an interesting, uh, a slightly different angle on what I think of as uh, the multifaceted aspect of this hobby, pun intended. And, and uh, this this businessman from uh, from China could just as readily uh, describe this piece as a beautiful work of art, nature's art, as he could the science and the chemistry of it, or the uh, form and the shape, or the 
the name of the mineral or the locality geographically as to where where it came from. There's so many different aspects, uh, whether it be artistic or scientific, and that may also be part of a way to bring other people, more people into the hobby as to, well, what is their interest? Is it as an artist? Is it as a scientist? And find that that link, that connection to bring uh, bring in that, that what they do know to uh, having an interest in the minerals. Peter, and then I want to speak to Ian too. Yes, I just want to continue on your with the story behind, and this is just one example which is nice to see. So when I got my driver's license, I was 18, my brother was 10. I took him and a friend who was not a collector, and we drove up across the border to Norway. Here is this Hurumlandet granite, and I said, okay, let's, we're going to look for crystals. They know that. And we came to a cliff, parked the car, walked a bit, and here is this 200-meter-high vertical cliff of granite. And I said, what do you see? Oh, there are no pockets here, because my brother, he knew he'd been digging pockets with me. There are only some trees and some grass on these cliffs. And I said to them, and where do you think the grass is growing? And they looked to each other, and oh my God, they ran to this cliff and pulled out the first grass, and look, and here were crystals, smoky quartz and feldspars. That's just a short. Now, uh, 15 years down the road, I was at my university. One guy was defending his PhD thesis. And after, Matthias, he came up to me and he said, thank you so much, Peter. It's thanks to, to you that I study mineralogy. And I said, how is that? I was in the army, and here was this guy, Joachim my brother's friend, he was telling those collecting stories in the tent in the evening. It made me so excited. Can you imagine? And this is, you know, these stories, if you bring kids out, so each one of us, anyone who's a collector or scientist, if you spread this to a few people, that will spread further that you cannot even imagine. I be- yes, I believe it. Ian? It's, it really is often a question that, uh, fortunately, we still get from, uh, from people when they're looking at a specimen, I mean, even if they really like it, and they say, well, just what would I do with this? And it comes back to, you know, most people don't know that they have to put it in a cabinet and protect it, and, you know, what would I do with this? That's one of the, one of the big problems we have. And I mm-hmm. think now with the, the advent of social media and, uh, you know, some of the work I know Brian's been doing to get uh, films out there, we need to... You know, we need to sex up the hobby a little bit, and it's well, uh, cor- corollary to that is how do you convince the the housewife who's managing the home to allow something to be put on display? And 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 uh, what we've done, uh, I'll let you address that. Well, okay. one of the things that I noticed was whenever you open a magazine, there's a mineral floating in space. It's got a background of a nice color, but. It's not grounded. It's a mineral. It's so beautiful, but we don't show it in a home. And I've always said I would like to see more ads where there is a mineral on the coffee table or in a cabinet um, with other, because we understand curiosities and curio cabinets, and to have them there so that people say, oh, I can have this in my home, but we don't promote that. We have our minerals floating in color with no grounding. So I think it's important that... My next dad's going to have a mineral on a toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Chris, were you going to say something? Well, I just want to come back to what Jolien said with uh, the Chinese market and the Chinese idea of, you know, collecting minerals. Um, There's a big industry there for this viewstone idea. And 
I thought or I'm thinking that mineral collecting needs time and we, the education, what we do needs generations to create mineral collectors. So you cannot just copy the idea of doing shows or doing or having mineral collectors in China. You need to develop that through generations. And I think here in, in the United States, as also in Europe, uh, we did that the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. And we are still going on. And in my, from my perspective or point of view, this mineral industry and the market still grows. It still grows. And uh, we are all doing our best to, to go on and, and growing this. So work on other countries, make, make it passionate, and that addict was, the people to right. our hobby. And I think we are, we are absolutely on the right track. We tend to focus on our areas where we are, but we need to go beyond our borders. We need to go and, and bring this education and make it available to many other countries that, where it's not a known thing. You know, we know a lot of people who would dig minerals but had no idea what happened to them once they went. So I'm Coming back to the, uh, Chris's excellent point on, on China and collecting there, we're also uh, learning about these uh, significant new museums, uh, geologic museums with fine mineral, presumably uh, fine mineral collections that are being built in every province, if not every city across the uh, the country. Has anyone been exposed to those uh, and seen what's been happening there, Julian? Yes, I mean, I've visited uh, several of these museums in China and that's absolutely right. Um, I mean, they are investing a, a vast amount of money in setting up museums. Um, they are uh, taking uh, mostly um, local minerals, but generally large pieces. Um, obviously, China is famous for its uh, uh, paleontological um, resources as well, and that's something that is very, very well displayed within these museums. Um, and they are modern, they are, are well lit, well laid out. Um, obviously, I can't read the language, but it looks like they're putting in a good effort into the educational side of it as well. Um, uh, so they are doing something very, very good there. Um, Let's see if that um, generates a new um, generation of, of, of people interested in minerals. It'd be nice to see with China, for example, um, that the Chinese people actually bought their own minerals rather than everything coming to Munich or to Tucson to be sold onto the West. It'd be mm -hmm. nice if that start, started to dry up because they were appreciating their own minerals and their, their own community were, were collecting. Well, as big fans of Chinese minerals, we're finding that it is drying up, yes. <laughs> Alan. Yeah, I've, I've had a lot of dealings in China, and I too now also is competition and status. The Chinese are driven by this. So if they see at the university building a, a museum collection, they'll say, well, I need to attract my students, I need to that status, they'll start building collections. And the sheer volume of people out there as well, and also the resources there. It's a mining country, you know, you find that, you know, Things are driven by the resource that's coming out, the mines are there, and specimens are coming out. And as Jim says, you know, he's finding it harder now to get good Chinese minerals because the Chinese are somewhat woken up a bit. Um, the internet, of course, fuels that because you can go online, you see prices, you see where they come from, and that's, 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 that's how they're driven. I have a question for you, Jim. What do you, what would you say, how would you break down the demographic of the average mineral collector here in the States? 
are they professional? Are they professionals? <laughs> are they you know, age and, and professionalism? How would you break that down? That's that's a great question. There's, I, I think of it as really there's a variety of different collectors. Uh, what I'll bifurcate uh, high end, if you will, the marquee pieces versus uh, uh, someone who's who's uh, limited on on budget. Uh, uh, so you have a lot of folks that are that are uh, either geologists or or interested in in minerals. Uh, uh, for their, for their, uh, whether it be the chemistry or the the systematic aspect, there are folks that are interested more in the, the uh, the, the nature's art, and and the beauty of that. And um, but if you're looking for the type of person, I'm not sure that I can, you can point to any one type of uh, demographic in that respect. No, because it's always a question in my mind between Europe. Let's let's take Germany as a perfect example between Europe and America. Now, we all know the big magazines we have. We have the Mineralogical Record, which we all know well. And let's use Lapis as an example. Now, the distribution numbers of the Lapis magazine are much higher than mm. the, the, the Min Record. By a lot. So is it, would you say the business, the, the collecting hobby is bigger in Europe than it is here? Well, I think from the market point of view, uh, the market here in the States is much, much bigger because America is much bigger than Germany. Um, the tradition, I don't know. Uh, we in Germany focused a lot on educational ideas, on you know, mineralogy and, and, and geological ideas. So when Christian Reise founded uh, Lapis together, actually with my father in these days, uh, they took care and informed a lot of people about this hobby we are into. I don't know if that started in the same time here in the U.S., so I, I, I don't know. I, I think, just thinking about when we started collecting, how did we learn? How did we uh, collect knowledge and do it as quickly as we did? It was clearly because of the Internet and access to, uh, in particular, Mindat. Uh, I'm still on Mindat every day. Uh, uh, researching and learning about uh, this mineral and this, that location and and what's going on in this country and things of that sort and I and and that's um, in a sense counterproductive relative to physical paper magazines whether it be lapis or the mineralogical record uh, especially on a generational standpoint As we talked about earlier everybody at the younger age is dealing with if it's on my screen I'll take pay attention but if I have to pick up a, or buy a book or a magazine I won't do it. John. I see one of the uh, earliest scenarios here that we want to tap into is the emotional one. And we, we, again, we all have such passion as a group. And I think that this is one of the easiest things to inflame and inspire is by not doing it dourly, not doing it slow, but actually speeding up, amping up, getting excited about it, letting your passion enthuse. At the point where we can do this, I, I think everybody wants to have a flame underneath them to light them on up. And I think so much of this happens, you, you know, Julian with the work he's done at Mindat, you know, you with the work that you've done, Chris, over with the show, Alan with the 
museums, you with the mines, Ian. I mean, we're all passionate individuals. And I think this is something that we dummy down so often as passion. Oh, geez, that guy's just all wound up. Well, I want us to be wound up. I want us to be excited That's because this is, yeah, well. Mr. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's just, it's the thing that inspires. And, and maybe, Jody, you, you could answer this better than anybody having thought about it because, you know, the, the MinBat uh, statistics um, are quite easy for you to look at. What are the, what are the demographics you're seeing now worldwide with, well, with we, users? We get over a quarter of a million unique visitors a month. So that is, gives you an idea of the number of people worldwide who have some interest in minerals. Mm. Um, we have... Um, you know, eight to ten million page views a month um, on a good month. I mean, it's it's very very busy, and it's a it's a very well used site. Um, so there are people paying attention. There are people coming. There are people wanting to learn. Whether it is a child coming to do some homework, uh, and we you know we know that there are many schools that base um, their uh, you know their their homework education. Um, on Mindat and they tell them go look on Mindat to find out information on this, this and this and that is uh, very, very frequent um, through the scientific side, through the collectors, I mean I think one thing that's very clear when you actually when you come to Tucson um, is that the whole idea of, of what is a demographic of the collector in the US, I mean it is such a broad concept mm. um, from you know, the high-end collectors to those who are buying for museums, down to people who go out into the desert to pick up rocks to polish. And it's, there's the, the, the rock hound end of it, and we shouldn't discount that because that is extremely important. It is probably the bulk of the market here in the US in terms of volume of people. And I think sometimes as, as higher-end collectors, we tend to look down on that, and we shouldn't because that's a very, very important part of the market, and it's, these are people who share the same passions as we do, although maybe not to produce the same end results of a high-end collection that we do. But their love of minerals and of geology and of going out and finding things is exactly the same as us. Uh, so that's one thing I would like to see changed, is, is that for, for the, the collector community not to look down so much on the the rock hounds on the, 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 the agate liquors and everything else that, that we call these people. Uh, and I believe we, I have, believe we have another I've also seen it the other way where there's some incredible snobbery from the agate liquors of people who spend money to buy a rock. Oh, so, that is true. So well, there needs course, to yes, be a two-way yes, connection yes, there. Yeah. That's well, funny. In, in fact, uh, rather than demographic, I think it's a more of an economic question, Ian, is, is what we've observed over the years is when you ask someone, well, what do you collect? Invariably, it's, it's driven by their available budget. I, I focus on minerals from um, the Sumeb uh, uh, mine, for example, and I, that, I, that gives me a, a, a scope, a frame I can stay within, and, and I see something that's beautiful out here, but it doesn't meet my niche. So it helps, helps not spend that money that you might otherwise uh, uh, not have, or a calcite collector, just pick another... Example or a size and, uh, and focus on that. Because sizes. not thumbnails, everybody has a massive are great collections. Mm -hmm. Micro mounts is becoming, uh, it continues to be popular, which are uh, uh, in many respects uh, pocketbook friendly. 
and and uh, as as a consequence, you have uh, folks that are just as passionate with these these little uh, beautiful pieces of, uh, of mineralogy that uh, has the full demographic uh, spread across that. But it's within this box that uh, of, of folks who who can only afford so much. And and we, I'm first to admit, we'll we'll spend whatever we have until we run out and don't have any more. Once you get that passion, as uh, John puts it, and being in the hobby, that's that's the limit. Yeah. One of the. Uh... One of the interesting things, going back to the sort of our conversation, we saw come up at the uh, the sumed.com talk the other day, <coughs> where Mike Rumsey talked about some of the British, uh, some of the mineral specimens in the British Museum. And one of the interesting things that uh, Mike had put on a couple of his slides, um, referring to some of the uh, the ugly specimens that the museum had bought um, from uh, the Krantz Mineral Company in the early 1900s from the Sumed mine. And uh, Mike had very thoughtfully um, translated the, the prices that the museum had paid for some, you know, very insignificant-looking specimens back then. And Alan will be able to tell more about this because it's something we often talked about when the mineral prices back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, were, I think, considerably higher than, than they perhaps are today. When you look at some of the specimen prices that you know that were reached at some of the Hewland auctions and you translate it to modern money the prices were extraordinary back then that has been a perennial complaint hasn't it uh, yeah the pricing is a blessing and a curse I think all at one go um Philip Rashley said if I if I hadn't started collecting I would never have done it now because I'm just spending far too much money and that was what in 1780 or something you know yeah. it's like and uh I think people can come around the shows and look at the prices and they go, wow. But then they go, hmm, this is not for me. You know, I will never get to that stage where to afford it. This is just reality. Now, the demographic thing is really interesting as well, about why people, I think the reason why people collect, what do you want it for? I think mineral collectors are almost like stamp collectors, in a way. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a personal hobby that you do. Sometimes I think we can, are we overthinking all of this, trying to get something out there that might not appeal to masses? I don't know. When I look at the museum exhibitions, I look at something like David, the David Bowie exhibition at the V&A. That was oversubscribed literally from day one. No one can get in there because they wanted to see. Now, everyone, they can put their record on in their house. They can uh, go on the internet. But they wanted to see what he was wearing, you know, what it looked like. And there's a great article. It's called this about the artefacts, stupid. It was published many years ago. It was about the, uh, the aspect of having the actual object on display rather than the information. And there were two museums doing about the celebration of the Wright Brothers' um, first flight. One museum had all the information you know, on computer screens and everything. The other museum had the actual plane. Who got the most visitors? The actual plane. People wanted an experience. And I think that is one thing we need to look at more carefully, the experience of celebrating mineralogy uh, and getting people to go there. How do we do that and infuse people? That's, that, that's always been a mission that the museums had to look at much we, more carefully. We have noticed that museums, often people come in and think, this is so rare, it's so unusual, it has to be behind glass with high security in a museum. And I love to tell people, you can own something. It, it won't be as grand by any means, but you can own a fluorite. You can own this. And they're shocked because museums, in a way, make it almost 
impossible for people to think that they could be so humble as to own something like this. Well, after we had first gone to a museum to look at uh, a fine rotocrosite, the Alma, Alma Queen, we went home and uh, looked up on our computers and the internet, and about the same time we both discovered, hey, Honey, you, you can, you can, you can see these things, and what, what, how did we, we look at each other, yeah. it was, uh, hey, honey, you can, you can buy, buy this, this stuff. stuff. <laughs> and, and we've been doing it ever and since. And we've been doing it ever since, but we didn't know that. There was no connection at the Houston Museum that let us know that we could actually become collectors of this. So this is something that maybe museums will be able to do because the gift shops are just, um, the, the things that they have in the gift shops are not necessarily realistic. They're heated quartz and citrines and things like that. So maybe this is something. Do you think the British Museum, Alan, would let me put one of my posters up in the mineral gallery? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. <laughs> We've had that conversation many times. Watch the sparks fly. <laughs> Actually, Ian, um, as I was saying, when I was a child, I bumped it. I found mineral museums, uh, mineral shows by accident. And it was actually a small poster in the security guard's window in the mineral galleries at the Natural History Museum, which was the only time I ever found out about a show. Yes. Yes. I had to put those in there as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of my John. first jobs in the museum. <laughs> I love these, ne- these comments that we've been pushing around because it all comes back to what were our experiences? What were the things that got us excited? And I, I, I love everybody's perspective, but I noticed that not one of us is talking about Thursday morning, Friday morning, kids' day. Yes. Where every single dealer looks down their snoot. Oh my gosh, it's those grubby kids. They're going to come on in. They're going to grab everything. And it, and it seems so short-sighted to me that we alienate the very people that we need to bring on in, that we need to enthuse and yes. take to that next level. Mm-hmm. And, and it, 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 it seems to be rampant within us as a group to not allow the newbies, the kids, the adults, the new people who are experiencing this hobby to come into it welcome. It's almost like they have to kick (laughs) and scratch to get a foothold to move into this. First thing we learned when we came to our first show was avoid Friday mornings, which is sad. Julian? Well, one thing we did a few years ago, and we we definitely need to repeat it, and we'll probably do that next year, is we did uh, the Mindat sticker book. And the idea is we gave away, uh, we printed this uh, sticker book and we had the, the 10 Mohs hardness minerals as separate stickers. And the idea was that they were hidden around in different dealers on the room and all the kids had to run around and find all these stickers uh, to fill in these sticker books. And it was great because the sticker books were paid for by advertising from the mineral dealers. So they, they all put in enough uh, an advert in it. So it was, it was completely covered the cost. And on that Friday morning, there, I remember seeing there's just this whole line of kids sitting down on the floor, just sla- per- carefully putting all these stickers into the book. It was wonderful. Nice. These nice are the idea. sort of things we should be doing more frequently. Chris, can you see that at your show? <laughs> yes, um, I can see it in my show. I can also see this, what you said, John, the, the problem that... The, the exhibitors, the dealers, they, it's not only their hobby, I mean, it's also their business. And this sometimes gets in, 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 in confrontation with the idea to educate and to let all the kids in and, and um, you know, play around. I mean, the dealers have to, that it's their basis, it's their ex, uh, existence. So I understand that totally. And it's in the mineral hobby as we are in, it's more accepted 
than, for instance, in the gem or the jewelry area and industry. I mean, there are fairs around the world who are really denying the access of children to their, to their fairs. So it's forbidden to bring in your family in there. So we are, we are quite okay, I would say, in, the mineral, in our mineral hobby. But I, from, from a business point of view, I would really understand the dealers who would say, okay, this is my business and I have to focus on that now. Understand. Alan. Following on from that, being a bit controversial here, is that maybe the business of the shows has, over, has been taking over what people think the museums should be doing. So shows have become a museum in their own right. Kids go there to learn about the subject from dealers. They might not have the same experience going to the museums because the museum doesn't cater properly for the subjects within the museum. I think that's Interesting. A, and the commercial activity, of, of course, it's going, to be, it's going to be in competition with teaching, but that's the way it's evolved. And I, I really started thinking that recently, that you know, the museum's offer um, is not good enough to promote the subject, so people go to the shows to see it instead. So what's the solution? I think the solution is that, that a sea change would be a, a mindset change by having the curators come to the shows and start doing tours, um, start taking the kids around, and then if that, can get that, if that benefit to society or accessibility gets back to the museum, the museum, so hopefully the powers that people wake up and say, actually, we need to embrace this a bit more. Could you have, uh, for example, to expand on that point, uh, uh, a professional, whether it be a museum curator or someone very knowledgeable, leading a group of whether it be children or adults around and, and go to one dealer and say, hey, do you have a rock that we can touch and feel and handle that we've been talking about that physical, tactile aspect that is so strong to, to talk about uh, the mineral and while you're looking at it and admiring it and hear some of the stories uh, or even the science, uh, whatever angle you have. Well, we, 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 I must say we had a meeting the other evening, Peter, you were there as well, where we discussed the education aspects of the SMMP, all the curators got together. And we were saying, let's talk about our own cases that we put into the show. And then half the camp said, well, let's talk about the dealer's cases, because it's not about our own cases. So there's a conflict between the, 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 the curator promoting themselves at right, the show, right. but maybe not the subject. Right. But I recall sitting in on meetings and people complaining that they'd have to stand next to their case for an hour, and that was just such a pain. And, and I was surprised at the lack of enthusiasm for doing that, because... I think also there's some fear as well. I mean, remember, people who work in museums are meant to be an authority on their subjects, and yes. many of them may not have done that. But I know from personal experience that once you do that, the feeling of giving back and, you know, is very, very powerful yeah. for people. And a solution would be that everything that goes in that case is studied before it comes to the show so that whomever is standing there is knowledgeable about every one of those pieces. Yeah, and I think everyone has a role here to play in that because I know that I've, I've called massive favours like Chris and me and all of you, you know, in the past, say, oh, can I borrow a specimen? Can I, oh, can I bring someone round to show something? Mm -hmm. And I think that we should nurture that a bit more. Absolutely, and I agree with you on that. And mm. I think uh, collaboration is a way to go and communication is a way to go. Yeah. We tend to lack in communication. I, I'd like to think that, especially with the younger crowd, um, moving from one spot to another physical spot, that, that, that movement around and the changing of if you will, scenery, uh, uh, may be beneficial too. Uh, so many of the kids get bored after a few minutes and 
looking at one case, they may not have an interest in these minerals, but you go to the next one, oh, suddenly it opens and, and an also eye. it's about the individual. The, 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 the people pick up on the passion of yourself. Yes. So I know that they, they see me coming from a very poor background and I made it in the mineral business because I, I love minerals and they think, oh, I'd like to do that. Or, you know, I want to be a collector like you. How did you start? And mm-hmm. the, you become the sort of, uh, uh, they, the kids want to be you. In effect, right. I've seen that right. so many times. So, that's so really role important. model is, yeah, is role huge. Model. That's, that's the word I was looking for. Right, uh, passion is um, is something that's that can spread so easily. So, oh, John, yes, what, <laughs> what you. might you, you say? You're all so kind to me. Thank you. You know, the way that I like to equate it is: let's think for a minute. How does a kid see passion typically expressed by an adult? It's an anger. And this is the last way that I want to express passion. I want these kids to be able to come on up and see these things and, you know, be able to breathe life into them in the same way that we breathe life into these things that we feel so strongly about. And the one thing that I know for sure, and it's so sad that so many don't recognize it, is that when you give of yourself, you receive tenfold, you receive a hundredfold. It's so far beyond monetary. Um, Maybe I'm not the most astute businessman, but I'll tell you what, somebody comes on in and they ask that genuinely interested, innocent question. I want to put all my customers to the side because they're there. They already know. I want to take this to the next level for these new people, for the people that are seeing this for the first time how can we just not just fan the flame, but create a fire by it? But it can also be very distressing for a child when they see the family cat go flying out of the room after it's just not oh, the mimi- after it's just not the mimitite off the discipleship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bad boy. <laughs> As our cat did one day after destroying a very expensive rock. <laughs> that was not a rock. That was a fine gem. Yeah, right. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. Oh my goodness, Peter. that's too funny. One thing that we haven't uh, discussed really, I think, you know, of course, we to get people exposed in the beginning, if they get to a show or a museum, I think it's very valuable to have very short but simple <coughs> films on big screen in several places where somebody, and preferably a kid, is in fact pulling out a crystal and share the shared joy. You see the mountain a few seconds, you see the vein, and somebody's pulling out and... The thumb is there, and oh, my dear Lord, look at this quartz crystal. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's really important that people can see how it comes out of the ground. A lot of people assume that pyrites that we have in our museum are created by man. And there's nothing actually at our screen that says this is a natural formation. So as a docent, I have to give that knowledge. But there's tons of people that come through when I'm not there. John, you, I know you do a lot of, uh, uh, if not classroom, at least uh, uh, young people uh, presentations uh, in a significant way. Do you take physical minerals with you for, as part of that? Uh, yeah, I project? sure do. Um, I think this is one of the key things. Again, we're back to exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, I bring a number of different things that can be both handed on out to people that they can experience to touch for the first time. Uh, we have things that are the story pieces that we have. And, you know, so often that's what we do with the pieces that we bring. We have to breathe the life into them, like Gail was just saying here. Education is truly the the key aspect of what we're doing. And 
we can share it or we can share it fun. And we want to get everybody excited again. So by having these specimens, by letting the kids come on up, be able to touch them, be able to feel them, telling the stories that excite them, this becomes the really the funnest, funnest thing. It's not a challenge anymore. It's an enthusiasm that just and inspires. And you get a real kick out of it when you're done with those sessions. I get more wound up than the kids. Maybe somebody of you, some of you have noticed that. It's, it's but, a new yeah. high. It's really an actual new high. Yeah, we, we shouldn't forget that we can educate and get people interested in minerals at all ages, not just for children. Um, yeah. Um, I've given you an example of something that I did uh, a few years ago. Uh, I'm a member of my local mineral club. Uh, I joined in the 1990s. When I did, I was the youngest person there by far. Uh, I'm still pretty much the youngest person today there. Um, mineral clubs tend to have this, um, this, there's the view that they are just places where old people go to talk about minerals. So, uh, as a contrast, my local mineral club organised a trip to Dover to collect marcasite, which is one of the two places we can really go within a day. Um, two people went on that trip. Two wow. went on that trip. At almost the same time, in fact, I think it was the day before, I had organised with a, a group that was called Super Collider in London. They're sort of like a, a science club for mostly sort of art students, um, people who are graduates, people who have come from... Mostly the idea is mostly people from the art background who want to learn more about science in an informal environment. So they have a meeting once a month uh, in, a, in a bar. So they say it's like, your, it's like science class at school, but with live music <laughs> and a bar. Um, and, so, um, and they would have invited speakers along, and I was one of the invited speakers, which is why it's, this happened. And the concept was that basically PowerPoint was banned. It was... You had to get up and you had to talk. It had to be like, a, like this sort of workshoppy type thing where people would ask questions and you would respond. And I went and talked about this, about crystals. And at the end of it, I said, well, if you want, I'll organise a trip. We could all go out collecting. And the response was outstanding. Yes, yes, let's do it, let's do it. So we did this. So we then had a, a coach of people who were paying £25 each uh, for me to guide them down to the coast to go collecting, um, none of whom had ever done this before. Um, this was a beginner-friendly place. It's chalk. It's a soft rock, um, and the, the, it's easy to get into. I thought, you know, nothing can really go wrong here. I still have people who manage to bend their chisels in chalk, and I didn't <laughs> quite understand how that happened. Uh, but it was a fantastic time, and they started, came up to me and said, oh, we, we should form a geological society in, West London, in East London or whatever. Um, Lovely. Collecting, getting people out to dig. That is the number one thing to yeah. get enthusiasm. Yeah. And I, I actually did, did that at the Perot Museum. I took a docent, but I took staff. And these are the young people who stand in the hall and have no clue about how these minerals come out of the ground. So I took them to Arkansas. James Seacrest was kind enough to have us out. And we dug. And I've written an article about it. And they found quartzes aplenty, but each one elicited a, oh, and, um, and they're coming to Tucson too. Aren't and they? they are coming. They are arriving Friday, because I took them digging, and now they understand where they come from. And I send them articles; they read them. So suddenly, the staff at the museum, who just stand around bored in that hall, are passionate because they've dug, and now they're coming to Tucson on their own. By the way, not from the museum, they're coming on their own here to experience. So. 
sometimes museum personnel need a good a good passionate dose as well because they're there every day and it becomes boring for them but once they're taken out so we should have a take the staff of a museum digging day everywhere around the world and get them you know we don't talk about south american uh museums and how they're doing we don't know about the uh you know, what's going on down there, and there's a tremendous amount of minerals coming out, but we're not hearing. The communication needs to improve. I want, I want to know how well the museums do there. European museums, we all know about. Russian museums, Chinese. What about India? We're not hearing much about or what's Africa. going on there. Or Africa. So, Peter. I just want to give one example. The Madrid Geological Museum, in fact, there are three museums right next to each other. They have a mineral show every month. Mm which is wonderful. And they have gold panning, they have an underground mine in central Madrid, and this is very, very good. And they have plenty of kids coming, families coming. So they're doing a very good job, I must say. It's getting the family unit that, yeah. to me, is more important than just the yeah. child. Yeah. 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 No, the families are coming there. That's wonderful. All family. Alan? I couldn't agree more with you about getting museum staff out there. It, it makes museum staff have a totally new perspective of what they're looking after where it comes from, um, why the minerals are valued so highly. You know, when you look at the mining operations, how much time and effort and numbers of people that go into revealing some of these amazing objects, it's just not seen. Um, I think also the museums have a huge role in getting to their act together. And I, and I say that, I can say that now, leaving the museum environment. Um, I know that there's a, there's a Mineralogy Museums conference every four years. And I've been chatting with the Smithsonian. We've had many chats over the years saying, how can we infuse and drive the science, the mineralogy, but also the education? And when you look at those conferences and you look at the, uh, the, the subject matters, someone's always going to describe a new mineral, someone's going to do this, that. It's all internally focused. And I said to, you know, I said to Jeff Post and things, how we can, we should have a conference about museums and the, and the subject itself and how all of us can get together and then it comes down to, well, who's going to pay for this? Because there's so much competition inside the museum to um, um, justify the government uh, spend on those museums. And I think that's a sea change we have to make by getting people, the museum people out there more. That's a, very, that's a key. So what's the solution? Uh, one of the solutions we tried, actually, was to actually take our directors to a show. And I know I remember that our directors of finance came and they knew nothing about minerals and they looked at the stuff and they were starting to get infused. And from that one, I'll tell you what, from that one visit, we had treble the acquisitions budget. So someone said, well, you should buy more of those. Because I suddenly, oh, oh, you like them and, they, and they, they sort of get it. And then, but of course, it's momentum. You know, after a few, you know, we've all done that. You know, after a few years, you think, oh, it goes back again. So it's, you have to have people who can drive this forward and have momentum and get support and not be afraid of breaking down internal barriers between so, internal and external. Right. And so, John, if we said to you, we'd like to bring some museum personnel out to go digging, that would be something that you would consider doing? Absolutely, because we're, we're back to that beginning of exposure. And exposure is where people get experience. Experience is where people generate enthusiasm. And then they can take that enthusiasm and turn it into a passion. We have to start people somewhere, whether they're 48 or they're 8 or they're 98. People need to have the introduction. And like we've talked about, the very best introduction in the world is going out and finding your own treasures. Absolutely. Yep. 
Yeah. Gail, when uh, when you decide it's uh, time to bring the museum guys over to uh, to England to to, to uh, sample the local beer, then uh, you're welcome to bring them all up to any of the mines and, and uh, see, get them get them dirty, get them wet, to, and they can see let, where these things come to from. To let us know that we can put a group together and come visit and get dirty and and enjoy seeing how these things come out because. One of my favorite things to do is to show somebody one of our pieces at the museum and then pull out my phone and show them a picture of it all mucky and dirty and, you know, covered with rust. Um, and, and that alone is fascinating because on the show, the prospectors are pulling out little tiny aquamarines that are dirty and they were, you know, people were getting so excited and my friends were like, really? You know, but I'm like, well, the excitement is because it's a TV show and they have to be excited. But it's also the fact that it's something found that no human being has ever seen before and, and so on. Yeah, well, one, of the, one of the great things I see over here, Gail, and let's, let's use your museum, as a, the Perot Museum, as a, as a specific example. You have got a great interaction. It's, it's, a, it's not a government museum and maybe that's one of the reasons you can do it. But you have a great interaction between the collecting community, the dealer community, and the museum. We unfortunately, for some reason, do not have that in, in most parts of the European museum community. It's very, um, it's very secular. There is no crossover. It's, you know, it's been a big problem, especially in, in London. We've got one of the greatest museums in the world. They don't bother with us. They really don't. It's really sad. They don't encourage the collectors to come and have it. They don't have events. They don't do it. They don't do anything. It's just, just something that we've missed in Europe. Alan, is, 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 that, is, that, is that right to say? Is, is that because of, uh, when we first started collecting, there was a very strong um, conflict, I guess is the best way to put it, between the scientific academic community and the collector community. It seemed like there was... There was, uh, uh, they were definitely not in sync. Is, is that part of what uh, Ian is referring to? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but that's gone back through the centuries. It's been that way always. It's, well, yes. been a bit close, sure. Yeah. I, I always say that great quote I use in a lot of my talks and people get really shocked by it, is that in, in 1840, they redid the mineral collection and the trustees said we should have one collection for the man of science and one for the stupid gaze of the visiting vulgar. So that's like, wow, you really appreciate your public. Wow. That's, that's like saying I'm one of the deplorable. And right? I ask the question of confidence. Do we, do we still think like that these days? Yes. Do we still think that everyone who, who, who dare step in our hallowed halls, mm. are they worthy of our knowledge? Mm. And, and often, going back, what the curator thinks should be shown is not what the public can really understand. And I think you're right. I think you're right, Ian. I think it needs to see change. I mean, when I was at the museum, I was... It was difficult for me at the beginning for people to question, you can't have people behind the scenes handling this material. I'd open the safe and get a gold nugget out and ha happily give it to a kid. But I'd watch very carefully, but I'd say, don't drop it, be very careful. The parents are more worried, but that kid's face said it all. And I, and I think that, that, that is a cultural change in museums, a shift mm. that we have to have to embrace and that's going to take a bit of time but we've been going around this for years here haven't we right. we've, we've yeah. discussed it for and again a solution years. but you would could bring in so much um information and put together trips and and do so many things and we've just got to get past that roadblock that's been there 
But I think that this is one of those solutions is that we push towards this. We can't just talk about it. Mm. We push towards this about getting more involvement everywhere. But I think now you're seeing the sea change. I think with the younger generation of curators realising this, and I think there's a much more of a push to change. Um, that's what I see. I don't know if you want to have any comment on that. Or not. In, in a sense, I see that as, as a bit short-sighted from the academic scientific perspective yes. because how, how else are you going to generate that passion, that interest to, to discover that as a youngster, maybe science of any sort, never mind mineral science, is something that I can do, that I, I, I can excel in. And, and uh, what better way to have, have uh, youngsters uh, get passionate as John uh, points out than, than through the minerals and, the, and the, uh, the, the crossover opportunity of, hey, this is, this is a beautiful thing, but it also has some chemistry and some geography yeah, sure. and geology and all these other scientific aspects that it's the mission, the whole it's the mission information it's down side to the reason, mission statements. I think museums, especially mineralogy, lost what it is to be a museum as well. Remember, that, so they, they, they advanced the science of mineralogy. That is what, that's, what the, that's what our museum is, to advance the science of mineralogy. Your mission as private collectors, I'd be interested to hear what you think your mission is. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Is it to we advance the... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Our mission yeah. Because Jim and I, um, you know, in the bicycling world, I was a major player. Jim and I have been major players in funding the best education bicycle program for the whole United States. Hmm. Um, and there's many awards that are given out as the Gail and Jim Span Educator of the Year Award, things like that. So we naturally, when we came into the mineral world, started thinking about um, getting more people involved because we were having so much fun. And when we have fun, we want everybody else to have fun. And fun meant um, going to the shows, and fun meant digging rocks out of the ground and all that. So and fun meant showing other people our collections right, in our home. Right. We don't hide our collection away. You know, we're, we do we're two to three tours a week. Museum these days. <laughs> um, so we're different probably than, than many collectors, but in our sense, we believe in educating. We believe in crossing boundaries of ethnicity and culture. We, we are very big on, on having children, and, and we, we have no bias. We want everybody, and when we say everybody, we mean everybody, to come into this world and at least be given the chance to decide if it's something they like or not. Um, no child comes to our home without going home with a bag full of imperial topaz, Herkimer diamonds, and whatever. And they come with labels, and we teach them about labeling. We teach them all the aspects. Being involved in a museum, we're involved in two museums, actually, the Peabody Museum as well, um, gives us a chance to educate. I, I think if I had to put it in a mission statement context, as you ask, which, uh, which certainly the business institutional world uh, uh, is focused on these days, I would characterize it as how can we share that passion, that enjoyment we have with other folks so that they too can, can have such a, a, a fun time with a hobby of some sort that could also turn into a, a, a profession, if not, uh, if not an avocation. Well, for me, it's interesting, one thing that you call, you, you call yourself the SMAM Museum, so you're creating a museum, and the values of what you think a museum should be. I think that museums have lost what a museum is, mm -hmm. which is what you're creating, but you pushed your passion into other museums, and I think museums 
are now waking up to this, that have been left behind. And again, it comes to competition. They think, well, we've got one of the greatest collections in the world. You know, we've got to make better use of it. And so how do we do that? It may be not, of course it's advanced science, but this world is all about education and inspiring the next generation as well. And I know John had his hand up first, but Julian, you'll be next. I was just going to say, I think what Alan is saying is reflective of what Chris said earlier in regards to the dealers and how this is our business and this is our vocation. And I, I think we've definitely, we've lost sight of the dream. You know, we're, we're so just notched down into this little funneled cubbyhole of knowledge or what we think we should share that I think we need really, we need to just burst that and we just need to come at it from all, all aspects, sharing it. Because <laughs> it, it, if, if we don't share that passion, if we don't share the things that inspire us, how do we have a successful business? How do we be successful collectors? It's all about these things. And, and money certainly plays a role and, and we have to acknowledge that role. I mean, it's one of the first questions I get asked by kids. What is this worth? Because they're qu- trying to quantify their experiences. So, you know, I, I think there is a reality to what both of you guys are saying. But I think, really, in order to realize the dream of what we're saying, we have to just break those bounds. We have to go outside of our comfort zones, and we have to bring the people on in. And every time we do so, every time we open our doors, we open our eyes, I think we all get to be fulfilled in a way that we wouldn't have been had we not shared. I think one of the problems with museums, uh, or a lot of museums and, and other organizations, is, is, the, is the issue of money. And the more that, uh, that people involved in the museums, the curators, have to be concerned day to day about the financial side of things and, and limited budgets and resources and obviously having to spread their time between scientific work and outreach. Um, the less time they've actually got to enthuse about what they're doing. And, you know, if you make, the more hard you make a curator's job and the more, more tired they are at doing their job, the less they can enthuse about what they're doing. Um, I mean, one thing that was interesting when I was in, in Russia, in Moscow, um, the, um, the museums in Moscow, um, they, they come under purely under the, the state educational budget. Um, and they are seen as an educational resource. So the Fersman Museum, for example, um, is, is paid purely by the, the education department. Um, and they have no need to um, report numbers of people through the door. They do not care how many people come through the door, how many visitors they attract. That is not the metric that they measure for success. Um, instead, um, their main metric is the number of school visits and group visits that they have there and the fact that they have the curators guiding them through. I was there in the galleries at the Fersman Museum and a massive group of policemen came in. And I thought, oh, what's up here? And they were being guided around. It was the police cadets being taken on a tour of the Mineral Museum. Now, for anyone who ever's tried to export minerals out of Russia, that's a little bit scary that they actually understand minerals. But the reality is that, you know, where else would policemen, trainee policemen, be taught about minerals? And, you know, this for me was a very positive thing, that, you know, the educational side of this was seen, of, of minerals, was seen as so important, uh, covering every area. I went to see one really good historic mineral collection in Russia. It was in the Agricultural College. So, you know, minerals, I think they have a, a more 
historical view of minerals and their importance, which I think has been kept since the Soviet times. Uh, um, the Soviets are very pro-science, of course. So, um, uh, and uh, you know, I think we've lost some of that in the West, and we can earn a lot, a little, I think, from from looking at what other cultures do with their mineral museums. I truly believe, believe that coming from the art world, the art world earned respect uh, amongst the masses. And I think that the mineral world still has to continue to earn respect because once you're respected, then you have a voice. Um, and we can do that by doing displays, by doing talks, by, by going out into the world and, and, and making it known and earning the respect for all the hard work that people have put in over the generations to get where we are today. And I don't think we're a very good voice for our own selves. I don't think we do a good enough job of letting beyond our own community know about the important work that we all do. Good so that's point. a huge that's a huge part outreach, of it too outreach, is outreach. outreach exactly. And toot your own horn and crow about the things that other people have done in this world. Um, you know, Washington Roebling built the Brooklyn Bridge, but he collected minerals. But no, nobody really knows that except the mineral community. Mm-hmm. So how do we earn the respect out there? Any, anybody with any ideas on that? Well, by not being complacent, by not being silent, by not being a shadow. Again, toot that horn. Toot it as loud as you can. This is what we all are here for. We're passionate. We love what we do. Let's just take it to the next level. Gentlemen, we are coming to the end of our session. This has been most intriguing. Um, I really enjoyed this because everybody's perspective comes from a different point of view, and it's been just absolutely marvelous. So without further ado, thank you so much for everything. We really enjoyed this, and we got to eat while we did it, which was great. We've traveled around the world in one meal. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all. And that's going to do it for this episode of Breakfast with Minerals. We certainly hope that you enjoyed this show and that you got something worthwhile out of it. If you'd like to continue the conversation started here, we invite you to post your own comments in the Friends of Minerals forum section under Blue Cat Productions in the Mineralogical Magazine section. And you can find the link to that in the show notes. Also, please consider subscribing to our podcast and you'll be automatically updated for when our next episode of Breakfast with Minerals goes live. On behalf of Blue Cat Productions, The Fine Mineral Show, and Span Mineral Holdings, LLC, we'd like to thank you for listening. Have a great day.